0: C.S. Lewis beautifully said, and he was very accurate, that God whispers to us in our pleasures but shouts to us in our pain. And that pain and suffering is God's megaphone to awaken a world. And anybody who suffered is a believer. And by the way, believers suffer different than unbelievers. Not that their suffering is somehow tempered or tapered off, but he sees reasons behind it. It's not just, blind happenstance, he understands that the suffering, the pain, the adversity has been somehow, for some reason, shaped by a heavenly Father who loves him. And the acceptance of that can revolutionize that time of adversity. But pain and suffering poses a big problem for most people, I should say for all people, all of us, have struggled with the question, why? As we read newspapers, as we listen to CNN, as we hear reports of friends of ours that are suffering, we ask why. And the problem that is posed is that if God is so good and so infinitely sovereign and powerful, then why does he allow things to happen that we see in the world around us? And that's a big question. And perhaps the bigger question that people ask is why do bad things happen to good people? David asked that question. In fact, he begins Psalm 73 with a statement, but then a question. Or a statement and a perplexity. He says, truly God is good to Israel, to such as are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the boastful when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. There are no pangs in their death. Their strength is firm. They are not in trouble like other men, nor are they plagued like other men. Therefore, pride serves as their necklace. Violence covers them like a garment. Their eyes bulge with abundance. They have more than the heart could wish. They scoff and speak wickedly concerning oppression. They speak loftily. They set their mouth against the heavens and their tongue walks through the earth. Therefore His people return here, and waters of a full cup are drained by them. They say, how does God know? And is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the ungodly who are always at ease. They increase in riches. Surely I have cleansed my heart in vain and washed my hands in innocence. For all day long I have been plagued and chastened every morning. Granted, David has a very narrow perspective. He's obviously undergoing some kind of suffering and at the same time observing some ungodly group of people who seem to be healthy, wealthy, and wise. And he's questioning why. He's saying, this doesn't make sense. If you're so good and infinitely powerful, why do they have all the breaks and I have all the plagues? And he really wondered about that. If I had said I will speak thus, behold, I would have been untrue to the generation of your children. When I thought how to understand this, it was too painful for me. People have grappled with this problem for years, by the way. You are not new to the question or the philosophizing and theologizing of why there is pain and suffering in the world. Some of the greatest philosophers and theologians have been stumped with this question. Why do bad things happen to good people, or even why do bad things happen to God's people? That was David's question. Because that is a problem, people have tried to solve it with a number of ways and with a variety of systems. To be able to somehow harmonize with a loving, infinite God and suffering and pain in the world, people have come up with different views. The first view, very popular nowadays, is atheism. Because there is pain and suffering, God doesn't exist. He couldn't exist. And so they write God off because they say good and evil are two realities in this world that are at war with each other. And so they write it off completely, atheism. But if atheism is true and there is no God, then there really are no values. Good and bad become moot points. Because you have no creator to create an ultimate value system. Bertrand Russell, though he was an atheist, was an astute thinker when he said, there is no God, I don't agree with that, but listen to him, there is no God and therefore no good and evil. See, if one is true, the other must be true. Because the value system is dropped. And if it's true that there is no God and there is no good and evil, then there is no problem of suffering. You've erased the problem. And you can't say if there is no God and no good and evil, boy, that's bad that that happened. It shouldn't have happened. It's not good because there is no value system of good and evil. You've erased it. But you see, deep within the heart and the mind of every individual is the cry of, hey, that's unfair that she was raped. That's wrong that he was murdered. There is the consciousness that defies that kind of thinking. Then other people try to cope with the problem of pain and suffering with another system called agnosticism, which basically means I don't know. Agnosis, or ah, which means without, gnosko, knowledge. I don't know, which says at best God is detached from this world. At worst, God doesn't exist, but I don't know. Agnosticism is all questions and no answers. And usually, agnostics don't bother to really research to find out if there are good answers. They're just content to float through life and say, look, I don't know, all right? I'm not concerned about it. It doesn't bother me. I don't know if God exists. If He does, He's obviously not personal. And He may not even exist, but it really doesn't bother me. Someone once said that when you stop believing in God, you believe in nothing. I disagree. I think when you stop believing in God, you believe in anything. And it seems to me that agnosticism is just a question waiting to happen, looking for an answer, and will often grab a hold of any solution, even if it's pseudo-intellectual, if it suits their out their view of life, fine. And people will grasp that when it comes to dealing with pain and suffering. There is a third way people cope with pain and suffering. And that's called deism. So I've given you a few isms here. You've got atheism, agnosticism, and deism. Let me explain what that means. It means that I believe that there is a God somewhere out yonder where I don't know, but He has removed Himself from us. He is invisible. He is non-involved. He is the great clockmaker in the sky who wound up the universe at first and let it go. And then stepped back and just kind of watched to see what happened. That's deism. It has developed into a theology in the 60's known as the God is dead theology. Where a person actually declared, listen, I can't perceive God with my five senses. Obviously, as I read history intellectually, I see that there was the involvement of God in this world. But I don't see the same involvement today. Thus, God is dead. He's not involved in this world. But I do believe in a supreme being. He's just not involved. He's detached. Another way that people deal with the problem of pain and the idea of a loving God is what I call me-ism. That is where the world revolves around me. You find these people in the church under the banner of the health and wealth gospels. They deny pain, they claim it away, they say, I'm a child of God, I'm not sick, God will heal anything I have. And people who are sick are people who don't have any faith at all, but of course I have faith and God owes it to me to heal me. And everything revolves around them. Then there's a fifth way, and you probably fit into that category, that's where you view pain and suffering and adversity through the lens of Scripture. David, in beginning this psalm, did not view it through that lens. He noticed that the atheists and the agnostics and the deists all seemed to have a pretty good lot, but he was struggling. He was viewing it through a humanistic lens until he gets to verse 17. He says in verse 16, When I thought how to understand this, it was too painful for me. Until I went into the sanctuary of God and then I understood their end you get his drift? He had all these questions. He went to church. This is vernacular. He went into the sanctuary, the temple. He was reminded of God, His infiniteness, His attributes, His majesty. And he was also reminded that this earth is a short period of time in view of all of eternity. And we thought, you know, when I compare the wicked with the righteous, I must compare them in terms of eternity. I can't just look at the here and now. And when I consider their end... Then he says in verse 17, Until I went into the sanctuary, then I understood their end. Surely you set them in slippery places. You cast them down to destruction. Oh, how they are brought to desolation is in a moment. They are utterly consumed with terrors as a dream when one awakes. So, Lord, when you awake, you shall despise their image. All of a sudden, a new perspective came to him as he decided that he would view the good and the evil the suffering and the non-suffering, the unbeliever and the believer in terms of eternity. When you ask that question, when anybody asks that question, why do bad things happen to good people? You have made several assumptions by asking that question. It's important that you understand this. Anytime anyone asks, whether they claim to be a Christian or not, why do bad things happen to good people? There's some assumptions. First of all, you assume that there are values by that question. If there were no values, you wouldn't use words like good and bad. That's a basic assumption you've started out with. The second assumption is that you assume there is order in the universe. There's order. There's symmetry. Things must make sense. And you're puzzled when something wrong happens. You sit back and you go, it shouldn't happen that way that's wrong it should happen this way and so you've made the assumption that there's order and that something is awry the third assumption you make in that question is that people are important you don't ask that about plants how come bad things happen to my tulips You see, when you ask the question of suffering, you are automatically making the assumption that you are a special creation above other creations on this planet with different rights and a different moral base and an emotional setup and a destiny even, if you'd go that far. But you made the assumption that somehow you're different than other parts of God's creation. The fourth assumption that you make when you ask that question is that you assume that life is worth living. Otherwise, why ask that question? Who cares if life isn't worth living and suicide really is the answer? You don't ask the question, I'm plagued, why do bad things happen to good people? The fifth assumption you make when you ask that question is that you assume that there are answers. You're asking, you're wondering. And you assume that you are a rational being Living in a rational world and that there are rational answers. I'm not saying that there are complete explanations for everything. Don't get me wrong. You'll be disappointed. There are many things we cannot explain. And I'll be the first to say, I don't know. When many people ask me questions concerning pain, I don't know. And sometimes that's just the best answer, sometimes the most honest. But there is enough to satisfy, I believe, a longing and a thirsty soul. By the way, when you ask that question, a whole new set of questions arise. Why do bad things happen to good people? You go through all your assumptions. A few more questions come up, and that is, if there really are values, good and bad, who made those values? If there is order in the universe, who established the order? If people are important, who set the standard of their importance? Who governs that? Where did it come from? And on down the line. And I guess that would take you to a bigger question. And that's really what I want to get at tonight. Because they go hand in hand. You can't really ask or satisfactorily answer the question, why do bad things happen to good people? Why is there suffering and pain in the world? Until you've answered another question. What is the purpose for my existence? Why am I here? What purpose... Am I living at this time in history? Why? Until you've answered that question, the other questions have a real tough time fitting into place. One of the Roman philosophers in uh, ancient times used to say, when a pilot doesn't know what port he is heading for, no wind is the right wind. See, it's hard to say that's good and that's bad until you know the purpose and the destination of your life. Really. Let me give you an example. Joseph in the Old Testament. He had a lot of bad things happen to him. He suffered. He was sold into slavery by his brothers. And if you were to look at his life outwardly, you'd say, this is horrible. It's bad. It shouldn't have happened. Joseph, I'm sorry it happened to you, buddy. He was sold as a slave. He suffered physically. He suffered emotionally. He suffered relationally. He was then put into prison for a couple of years because somebody lied about him. But, though those things were horrible, you know how the story unfolds. David is made Prime Minister of Egypt. God gives him wisdom. By his decisions, many people's lives are saved. And so his brothers come to him at the end of life. Joseph is the Prime Minister. Joseph reveals himself to his brothers, and his brothers, their knees start shaking. They think, oh, it came back to us. All of the evil we've done to our brother Joseph will now be recompensed to us. Remember Joseph's response? He says, I forgive you, brothers, for though you meant it for evil, God meant it for good. I'm not mad at you. You had one thing in mind that you called evil, but God was using it. And this is good and God's will, what has happened, for the saving of many lives. So be careful how you tag what is good and not good, especially when it comes to pain and suffering. Oh, that's just horrible. You don't know until it's all over with. What you call evil, God might be using for a greater good that you and your limited human perspective have no way of discerning at this point. You meant it for evil. God meant it for good. You know, there's a scripture that you and I often turn to in pain and suffering, don't we? Romans 8.28. It's a comfort, but it's an enigma. I don't always agree with it. I just have to stake my claim in it. All things work together for good to those that love God and are called according to His purpose. I could handle that much easier if Paul would have written a few things work together for good. Or even lots of things. Or most things, but all things. Boy, that's something you really have to rely on when your back is against the wall. The purpose of life. What is the purpose of life? Is the purpose of life and the meaning of life happiness, joy, always being smiley all the time? I don't think so. In fact, I think, even as Paul says, if you're a Christian and you've experienced some of the pain and suffering that we're speaking about somewhere along the line, you would have to still agree that though that comes as part of life, life is still worth living Suffering or no suffering. There's still a purpose. And you see, if you try to answer life's meaning and life's questions, like why do bad things happen to good people, with any of those above explanations that we started out with, eventually that can lead to fatalism. Let me give you a couple quotes. Bertrand Russell, whom I quoted, the notable British atheist, among other things, he was a, a brilliant gentleman, but this notice what he said. He said, Man is a curious accident in a backwater. That was his philosophy in life. H. L. McKinnon said that man is a local disease of the cosmos. These are some of the world's greatest thinkers. Now listen to this is a quote by Dr. Albert Zenz Georgi, a Nobel Prize winner in medicine and physiology. He was once asked. What he would do if he was 20 years old again today. After being a brilliant researcher in physiology and medicine, he remarked, I would share with my classmates the rejection of the whole world as it is. Is there any point in studying and work? Fornication. At least that is something good. What else is there to do? Fornicate and take drugs against this terrible strain of idiots who govern the world. How would you like to go to him for encouragement when you're suffering? (laughs) You can see the lens with which he viewed life and what that led him to. He saw the same suffering that you and I see, but he had a different resolution for it. He resolved it in a completely different manner. Why do bad things happen? Why is there evil? Well, there's a couple reasons, and I'm not going to satisfy all of the answers. But first of all, the Bible clearly states that when God created this world at the beginning, He created it with an intended purpose. And when God made it, He said He looked at His creation and He saw that it was what? Good! But something happened in Genesis, the fall of man, the invasion of evil, the rebellion against God, so that what you see today is not a universe as God has originally intended it. This is not what God had in mind. This is not good as God had intended. One day it will be. As Christians, we look forward to a new heaven and a new earth when God will vindicate. There will be justice. There will be righteousness. But until that time, this is not what God intended. You know, a lot of people ask the question, well, where was God in Ethiopia? Why would God allow that to happen in Ethiopia? You know, it's funny that an American could even ask that kind of question. Seeing that the number one best-selling books in the United States are books on how to lose weight. And now one of the number one books is how to kill yourself. Commit suicide. The sanctity of dying. You know that there is plenty of food on this planet to give every single human being on planet Earth 3,000 calories per day. More than enough. The problem is hoarding. And so before we shake a fist and say, where was God in Ethiopia? You might want to ask yourself, where were you? And then we might indict the church and say, where was the church? in helping to spread out some of that. Then also, suffering on this planet is a result of freedom. You know, you have a choice. God did not make you a robot. He didn't say, you know, I want people to love me, so I'll create people with just the inbuilt uh, ability, without choice, to just love me. And so, every morning when they wake up, I will program it in their body to raise their hands and look up and go, I love you, Lord. Praise the Lord. Now, God wouldn't get off on that. Because God wants love. And true love means volition. And just by the fact that you have freedom, that means suffering. For instance, if a person gets drunk and drives recklessly down the road and runs over your friend, you're going to blame God for that? That person had a free choice and he made a stupid choice. And he has a freedom to rebel or he has a freedom to love God and obey. But to blame God for somebody else's lack of responsibility and even stupidity is ludicrous. Then there is also suffering in the world just because of the laws of nature. Follow my drift. Gravity keeps things on the earth. It keeps you from floating away. It's a law of nature that God has built into our system. However, gravity is a blessing, but it can be a curse. If you fall off a building, whether intentionally or accidentally, the law of gravity will not be inoperative. It will still work. And to your destruction. Hurricanes is one of the Earth's ways of releasing pent-up energy as the heat from the southern climates is pushed northward. And the pressure develops to release the pressure off the Earth. The hurricane is developed. But you can get in the way of it. It's a natural law of nature. Earthquakes. There are fault lines on our planet Earth that are a blessing. The planet Earth couldn't survive without fault lines because the planet with its pressure needs to adjust constantly. And so those plates are always shifting. Otherwise, the planet would break up if there weren't fault lines. But if you build your house on it, eventually, you don't know when, but eventually there are going to be problems. That's just part of nature. Then, there's just what man does by himself. There's man-made problems. Just think of technology. If there were no automobiles, there would be no auto accidents. Every year, 50,000 people are killed on the road. Half of them are because of drunk drivers. Man's rebellion, man's man-made technology. You know, you think about Ethiopia for a minute. At one time, the entire northern plain of Africa was fertile and green and productive. Man started cutting trees down. And when man started cutting trees down, the topsoil began to erode when the rains came. When the topsoil eroded and took it all away, pretty soon after many, many years, it turned into desert. It invited more heat. The African tribes started moving southward, cutting down trees as they went. Other people started coming in to get trees, cut them down, and the process happened all over again. In India, you know, I've been to India several times. There's plenty of food and productivity in the land of India to sustain that country and export to all over the world, to feed the world. But the problem is their worship system. They worship rats. And if rats come in and eat their grain, it is a sin for them to stop that rat, or to kill that rat, or to kill a cow who'd be driving... You know, the word holy cow really is an operation in India. (laughs) I saw a bus driver veer to get away from a cow that was in the road, not knowing that there was a man on the side, and he killed the man. Human life has become devalued because animal life has become elevated. It's a warped system. You take away that warped system, re-educate, Give them a spiritual foundation and things could change. So why does God allow these things to happen? Because man is a being of volition and he makes choices and he makes wrong choices. But love does require a choice. But before we get much into this, and we have about 15 minutes left, there's something we overlook. I often notice, in fact, it's ironic to the point of humor. When people are sitting around discussing pain and suffering and why is there evil in the world? The problem of evil. Nobody speaks about the problem of good. There is much more good at any given time on earth than there is evil. And there is much more peace worldwide than there is war and devastation. There's more beauty than ugliness. But nobody speaks about the problem of good. We're all concerned about that black dot on the white sheet. And that's all we can focus on. That's all we see. It was C.S. Lewis again who said, the question is not why do the innocent suffer, but rather why we don't all suffer more in the light of man's rebellion. Now, uh, Paul said that he wouldn't turn to Job uh, in that time. I'd like you to turn to Job now for just a moment. First of all, turn to Job chapter 1. We're going to look at his particular predicament. Verse 1, there was a man, chapter 1, there was a man in the land of Uz. Great country to be from. Easy to spell. Unlike Albuquerque, you know, you ask your friends, Where, how do you spell that? Uz. Whose name was Job. And that man was blameless and upright and one who feared God and shunned evil. And seven sons and three daughters were born to him. Also his possessions were seven thousand sheep, three thousand camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and it gives a list of his prosperity. Now, verse 6, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, Where do you come from? Satan said, From going to and fro on the earth and from walking back and forth on it. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job that there is none like him on the earth? a blameless and an upright man, one who fears God and shuns evil. And so Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made a hedge around him and around his household, around all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions are increased in the land, but now stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and he will surely curse you to your face. So the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your power. Only do not lay a hand on his person. And then Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Now, Satan suggests that Job is a mercenary in his service to God. Does Job serve you for nothing? Don't you know that he's acting righteous so that he can get something from you? He's really pointing the finger at God and saying, God, you're a fool. You're bragging about somebody being blameless and upright, but he's doing it because he wants to get something from you. He's saying that it's all done for no good reason. That the righteousness of man is really the worst of all sins. And notice that Satan complains about a hedge being around Job. That he has this protective hedge. Look, God, you protected him. You put it around he, his family, and his possession. Remove the hedge. Now, to us, first of all, that's a comfort. If there were no hedge around your life, you would be post-toasties. You can just thank God. Now, you might complain because you don't have all that you want, but you can thank God that you have a hedge. As soon as that hedge is removed, for whatever reason, Satan will try to usurp as much power and go as far as he can. Now, here's here's a clue. Job had no idea, being confined to this earth, being earthbound, the conversation that was going on in the heavens between Satan and God. He had no idea until later on when he finds out he's being tested and he sees the result of that. But he had no idea what was going on in the heavens, either do you. When you're suffering, you don't know what God has in store, what God's purpose and plan is. He hasn't revealed it to you. That might bum you out a little bit, but I doubt it would comfort you if God revealed much to you. We always want reasons. And you know, the more I try to explain to people reasons for God, it's futile, I find. The more reasons you give a person, oftentimes when they're suffering, doesn't really help them. And so when a person's in deep suffering, I don't really seek to give them great answers. Because a person really doesn't need reasons. He needs resources at that point. How do I cope with... You can sit down and go, Now I've got a really good intellectual theological reason why you are dying right now. First of all, who cares? That person isn't going to be comforted by that. He needs resources. And that's really what Job needed. Now, his friends came along and supposedly were going to give him counsel, resources. And they had a pat answer as to why such a righteous person was suffering. It was a very limited, narrow perspective. And oftentimes, Job's... We are as insensitive as Job's friends. They really weren't much of friends. They basically said, well, Job, there's sin in your life. God bless you. Your suffering is directly proportional to your personal evil. That's why Job turned to them and said, miserable comforters are ye all. Now, that is a theology and a teaching, is it not, that goes around in many circles today? There's sin in your life. If you had enough faith, you'd be healed. Well, the reason you're suffering this physical affliction is because you're living a Satan-defeated life. Well, excuse me, but read verse 1. He was blameless and upright, one who feared God and shunned evil. And notice what God says to Satan. If you considered verse 8, my servant Job, there is none like him on the earth blameless and upright, one who fears God and he shuns evil. So here's a a guy who's righteous, obedient, and it still happens to him. A series of tragedies occur to Job. Notice how he handles them. In verse 20, Job arose and tore his robe, shaved his head, and he fell to the ground and worshipped. He said, naked I came from my mother's womb, naked I shall return there, The Lord gave, the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all of this, Job did not sin, nor did he charge God with wrong. But it gets worse. More bad things happen to him until we get to chapter 2, verse 9. His wife, being the beautiful helpmeet that she is, said, do you still hold your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, you speak as one of the foolish women speaks. Shall we indeed accept good from God, and shall we not accept adversity? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Okay, his friends try to counsel him all through this book and try to give him the reason why evil has come upon his life. No good answers come out of it until we get to chapter 23. And an interesting development occurs in this book. In chapter 23, Job is at the all-time low of lows. He feels totally beaten. He's feeling the ravage in his body of disease. He's lost his goods. He's lost members of his family. He feels horrible. And when a person is experiencing extreme suffering, the words that he speaks come from the depth of his soul. And so if you're counseling someone in this, listen carefully, but listen with your heart. Listen with your heart. Don't just listen to his words. Listen to how he's feeling. And Job speaks from his hearts because when you're suffering, you just, you keep it short. Remember the last time you were sick? Did you want to engage in lengthy conversation? It was usually like, well, how are you doing today? Uh, aspirin, water, bed. You didn't have much to say. Job doesn't either. But what he has to say is important. In verse 1, Job answered and said, even today, my complaint is bitter. My hand is listless because of my groaning. Oh, that I knew where I might find him. See, that's the question we ask. Okay, I'm suffering. Where is God in all of this? I want to find God. What's the purpose? that I might come to his seat. I would present my case before him and I would fill my mouth with arguments. I would know the words which he would answer me and understand what he would say to me. Would he contend with me in his great power? No, but he would take note of me. There the upright could reason with him and I would be delivered forever from my judge. Look, I go forward, but he is not there and backward, but I cannot perceive him. Have you ever felt like that as a Christian? Paul felt like that. Paul Clark here. He was talking to us before as he was sharing. You feel so far from God. Where is he? Now, one of the problems we have, not only in suffering, but all the time is that we don't see him. He's invisible. That doesn't make, we think, for a normal, healthy relationship. You know, it's easy to have a personal relationship with someone you can shake hands with, hug, get eye contact with. God's invisible. And it seems like He's even more so when we're suffering sometimes. Remember the story or the movie, The Invisible Man? It was a story put into a movie. How that science came up with this new potion and the guy drinks it and somehow he becomes invisible. Now we've thought, wow, that'd be great. I'd love to be invisible because there's some conversations I'd like to listen to and have nobody know that I'm there. There's things I like to do to people and not let them know that it was me. But that blessing became a curse because the invisible man, though invisible, was still a man. And when he needed to survive, he had to touch the physical world. So when he needed food, you'd see the food floating across the room. Or the shirt or the clothes that he was wearing walk without a person in it. That which was seeming to be a blessing ended up to be a curse. We want to see, we want to feel, we want to touch And we don't when it comes to God, though we can experience God's presence, sometimes even feel, and yes, sometimes I believe even hear the voice of God. Oftentimes our experience feels alienated from God. Now how do we handle that, especially in suffering? Well, you handle it with one of those five solutions we gave you at the beginning, the typical ways that people handle suffering and the idea of God. For many people, God's detached, He doesn't exist, He doesn't care. There was a book written years ago by a rabbi, so-called, Rabbi Harold Kushner, who wrote a book, When Good Things Happen to Bad People. It was a bestseller. But he said concerning God in the book, God would like to get people what, give people what they deserve, but he cannot. He can't arrange it. God would like to do things, but he can't. He's bound, so he encourages us to forgive God because he's limited. Job has a whole different perspective. Look at verse 10. Instead of saying God is limited, he says, verse 10, He knows, but He knows the way that I take. And when He has tested me, I shall come forth as gold. Those are words of faith, folks. That's the recourse of the Christian when he suffers. Basically, Job says, look, I'm looking for God. I can't find God. I don't know where He is. I don't know why I'm suffering, but... I'm gonna trust him and I'm gonna submit myself to his control. The concept that we find in this verse can revolutionize periods of distress and periods of pain. They really can. Now let me get, let me get really blunt with you. Who are we to think that we should have all pleasure and no pain in life? Who are we? How arrogant. For us to think, God owes me a free ride, man. I shouldn't suffer ever. I can't believe. Where's God in this? He's left me. He's abandoned me. How arrogant to think that you should have just this pebble-free road your whole life, a bed of roses. Job is suffering. He's bitter. He admits it. He doesn't hide behind and say, well, praise the Lord anyway. He says, I'm bitter. I'm suffering. Where is God? But, bottom line, when He has tested me, Ooh, that's a precious truth. I shall come forth as gold. The word test means to put under the fire, or it means to examine something to determine its quality. Remember back in chapter 1, God brags about Job? Well, now he's being tested in that. And you see, this is the dividing line, folks, between a believer and a non-believer. A believer can look in the face of adversity and say, I don't understand it, but I've known God long enough to know that he's a God of love, and he's a great father, And I trust Him. I don't understand this, but I know Him. And knowing His character, perhaps this is a test, I don't know, but in the end, I will come forth as gold. See, the Christian looks at his suffering and knows that behind this suffering is a master craftsman. Just like the lapidary who would take his hammer and beat on a stone and make it something precious, a precious jewel. God is like that. There's an ancient story of a goldsmith who was working in a shop and he was taking gold that was somewhat dirty and in its uh, primitive form and he was boiling it, beating it. And then he'd put it in the cauldron and it would fire up and it would boil until it became liquid. As it became liquid, the impurities would rise to the top. But the top would look kind of muddled and dark and he would skim the impurities off. And he'd turn the fire up even more and then more impurities would rise to the top and he'd skim the impurities off. And a fellow was watching him do that one day. And he said, you know, you've been doing this for quite a while with the same pot of gold. How do you know when to stop? The goldsmith said, it's simple. When I look and see my image on the top of that untainted, it's time to quit. It's like that with our suffering, isn't it? God is working within you the character of Christ. And when he sees his image in you, no more trials. Well, I guess that means there's going to be trials until we see Jesus, huh? Because... We're being changed and our character is different, hopefully, than when we first came to know the Lord. But there's still a lot of changing to go. And when I am tested, I shall come forth, he said, as gold. God puts you in the fire. I won't doubt that. But he keeps his eye on the temperature, folks. Now, sometimes you're thinking, God, excuse me, I'm in the oven. Okay, Uh, I'm done now. All right. In fact, I'm well done now. I really would prefer medium rare. I'm getting hot. But God knows when to quit. He has the eye on the thermometer. He knows how long to keep you in and when to take you out. Job didn't say, and when I am tested, I shall come forth as crispy critters, but as gold. You won't get burned up. It might seem like you will be, but God knows when to quit. In the meantime, what do we do? In the meantime, okay, when it's over, great, but (laughs) I'm still suffering. Notice what he says, verse 11. My foot has held fast to his steps and I have kept his way. I have not turned aside. First of all, a determined pursuit. Job said, no matter what happens, I'm still going to follow him. Whether I understand it or not, whether I can find him or not, I'm going to be faithful to him. I'm going to follow him no matter what. Perseverance. He stuck with it. There are what I call Alka-Seltzer Christians. I see them all over the place. They follow God in the good times, but they're fair-weather followers. I call them Alka-Seltzer Christians because they come to know Christ and they have a great fizz, great joy and excitement, but they fizz out after a period of time. They start with great, but then they just wear out. Because they're fair-weather followers. Job said, I'm going to stick it out. Secondly, in verse 12, I have not departed from the commandment of his lips. I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. He had a determined priority of leaning on the promises of God. Now, I made a statement I want to reiterate. In times of adversity, reasons don't help as much as resources. Explanations don't help as much as promises. I could prove it to you. I could take you into a hospital room where there are Christians that I know and unbelievers, and you just listen to their testimony and watch how they suffer. And watch how they cling to the promises of God and how that seems to lift them up and give them purpose like Job when they couldn't understand the things that were going on around them. Okay, we've covered very briefly and very inadequately the problem of suffering. I want to shift for a minute in closing to those of us who are well. A word to the well here instead of a word to the suffering. Job's friends made mistakes that we don't want to repeat when we are counseling or dealing with someone in extreme suffering and pain. First of all, they reacted to Job's words rather than his feelings. They became junior attorneys. Now I heard what you said, Job, regarding this. And then they just hammered him for it. That's not the way to address a person. Because people in suffering, even godly mature people, can say some pretty weird things. And instead of just listening to the Word, get behind the words and listen to the feelings. Not just with your ears, but listen with your heart. Because a person in suffering feels threatened, insecure. And words come from their mouths that you just have to kind of take with a grain of salt. Secondly, they explained rather than encouraged. Not one of them said, Job, come here, buddy. Put my arm around you. I don't know what you're going through, man, but I love you. And I know that God loves you, and I know that you're probably doubting that man right now. But I just want to let you know that I love you and that God loves you, and I'm your friend. You can call on me. I'm here for you. They sought to explain and philosophize and theologize rather than encourage him. You know, oftentimes people who are suffering ask lots of questions, but it doesn't necessarily mean that they want lots of answers. Sometimes it's best to just listen and go, boy, that is hard, yes. That is tough. Let's pray together. I'm here for you. But there was no encouragement here. And actually, there aren't always good answers. Like I said, I, I meet with people who suffer and they go, why does this happen to me? You know what? I don't know. I don't have all the answers. I don't know, but I do know how faithful God is and how good God is. I don't doubt that. And I remind them of God's promises and give them God's resources. And you know why that's important? It's important because when they receive God's comfort, one day they come out of the shadows, they're going to meet people who are suffering. And they have walked through the experience of that, that's so valuable. In fact, Paul said, God comforts us in all of our tribulation, that we might comfort those who are in any trouble with the same comfort that we've received from God. We get comforted, we turn around and we comfort others. Father, we want to thank you. Though we don't understand all of these problems of pain and suffering, we do understand you. We know in whom we have believed. And we thank You, Lord, that You are in our balcony encouraging. I pray, Father, that the ministry of encouragement would pervade Your body. We see evil around us, suffering just because of the freedom of man, laws that govern the universe, man-made problems. But whatever the cause, Father, I pray that we would be part of the solution since the church is called the body of Christ, that we would be Your hands to extend to other people. We'd be Your feet and we'd be swift to run on errands of mercy. We'd be as Your mouth, speaking promises and comfort. And we'd love for Christ's sake.